And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read, but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I am Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. Harmony, what are we talking about this week? We're talking about one of my favorite books that I actually learned recently. I looked at the copyright. It was published in 2007, which was right around when I picked it up. So this book has stayed with me since I was 12 or 13. I'm not quite sure which. And these characters have stayed with me. And Maggie finally got to read it. And I hope that all of you have read it as well, because I think that it's a really fun book that lots of people should read. Yeah, y'all can't see it, but Harmony's copy is fucked up. (laughs) That is a well-read book. You know, this is actually not my original copy. So I had an original copy that I then left with my mother because I read it at 12. And if anyone has read this book, the book is The Passion of Mary Magdalene, by the way, by Elizabeth Cunningham, who is one of my favorite authors. I left it with my mother and then she read it. And then I think her friend took it or something while my mom was in the middle of reading it because it's an 800 page book. It's huge. (laughs) And so I bought my mother another copy, and that's what this copy is. So. Yeah, well, it's well read. Well, look, this is a tangent, but I think that's going to be the episode this week is just one giant tangent. I don't go in for the whole keeping your books pristine thing. I get why people do, or in some circumstances, but... I don't know what I mean. The more fucked up a book looks, it just means that somebody... The more loved. Yeah, that somebody read it and probably really enjoyed it, you know? I'm not usually a note taker in books or anything, but when I can tell that I'm really gonna love a book, it's annotated to shit, the spine is cracked, it's probably messy and has pencil all over it because it spent a lot of time in my book bag. No, I understand. That is why all of my books are beat up. Because I bring my books with me everywhere and I'm a messy human. So I can't keep a pristine book. It's a really big problem whenever I have library books. I'm terrified about destroying them. And I have spilt coffee on half of the library books I've ever checked out. So I know. Or like if I'm borrowing a book from a friend, it's terrifying. It's like, oh, fuck, I cannot do what I would usually do. Gotta be really aware. Can't dog ear this copy. Do you want to tell us? what The Passion of Mary Magdalene is about. All right, so The Passion of Mary Magdalene is about this girl named Maeve. And she is from a kind of mythical island that exists in between our world and the Summerlands, I think is what it's called, which is the Celtic heaven. And on this island, there are only women. And it's kind of implied that they're Celtic Amazon women. It's very Wonder Woman-esque. And that story is explored more in the prequel to this book, which is Daughter of the Shining Isles. But in terms of this book, that's all really all we know. We know that she, before she left, had a lover of some sort who we find out that was supposed to be sacrificed by people at her druids college. And she saved her lover, whose name is Isus, and then escaped because she was supposed to be killed for taking away this sacrifice. 
We also know that she has an interesting relationship with her father, who is at this point in the novel dead. Her father raped her, and we know that she's had a daughter with him that she had to leave on the Isles. And at the start of this book, she's only 19. And there are some other adventures that are very vaguely mentioned as she's trying to run away from the place where she grew up, the Celtic free people. Because there are two types of Celtics mentioned in this book. There are the Gauls, and those are the ones that the Romans have interacted with, and then there are the free people. And I'm not a historian, but I believe that those would have been the people in Ireland because the Romans never actually conquered Ireland because it was a shit country, they said, and they were terrified by the Celts. <laughs> so she ends up as a Roman slave, and that's where we're introduced to her. And she's bought by a whorehouse madam, and so immediately we're thrust into sex, sexy times. And Maeve, in case people haven't figured it out, is Mary Magdalene. Isus is, it's not explicitly said, but we've already gotten some imagery. So by now you should know that he is Jesus. And she works at the whorehouse and then she meets this goddess named Isis, who is a famous Egyptian goddess and is outlawed in Rome because of Cleopatra. Because for people who don't know, Cleopatra thought that she was Isis or said she was Isis because the Egyptian rulers did that. And she pisses off this wealthy Roman lady named Paulina and kind of accidentally runs away from the whorehouse. And so instead of sending her to the salt mines, which is essentially work until death for slaves, she is sold to Paulina to be her personal slave and her personal whore, essentially. And the part that we read today was up until page 208 and then 209 a new chapter starts. The chapter that we go up to is called chapter 26 King and then we stop right before chapter 27 to sing her return to silence and throughout most of this part Maeve is with Paulina experiencing life as a slave. It's kind of horrendous. She goes to a villa with Paulina and kind of discovers that Paulina has some deep tragedy and it's related to Paulina's relationship with her father, who is a horrible man. And it's kind of, it's not explicitly said, but it, it, we figure out essentially that he raped her as well. And when she was a child and did something horrendous to her mother, who was then exiled. So that is where we're at. And we just, we just got to see Maeve's foster father, who is King Bran, who is a popular mythological figure in Celtic mythology. And he apparently is this priest. He is a runaway slave from Rome who became a priest of a tree, a priest for Artemis, sort of. And this is based off of a popular pagan myth as well that's kind of associated with the British Isles about a, a tree king that has to fight off another king. I'm sure anyone who has any experience with Wicca will kind of vaguely remember this myth. I don't know that much about it. But yeah, he's, he's a tree king now. And so he guards the tree and then a, another slave is going to eventually come and try to fight him to the death so that he can be the tree king. And that's where we're at. So Maggie, what were your first impressions? Right. So I've heard about this book for about eight years now, kind of incessantly, and I was excited to read it. I 
think that the biggest thing that surprised me, right, because Harmony has told me about this book a lot, and a lot of the times it's been pitched as, you know, it's a, it's a retelling of part of a story about, like, related to Jesus, essentially. Yeah, it's it's Jesus fan fiction is what I pitch it as. Yeah, it's Jesus fan fiction, and it is that, but it's also very much not that, because Maeve is really just off doing her own thing in Rome, trying to find her lover. And so that, I think, was the first thing that really struck me as being like, oh, okay, this was different than a, what I had anticipated. The second thing that I've been kind of wrestling with is that this is pitched as a very sexy book, and there's a lot of sex in it, but so far, at the very least, none of the sex acts have, maybe one, have been consensual because she's a sex slave. So that's the thing that I've really been wrestling with. And I think the third thing is that I just really like Maeve as a character. I'm really taken in by this story. And I think that it's really fascinating and interesting. There's parts of the writing that don't drive with me necessarily as a reader. They're easy for me to overlook. The story's really fast-paced. I like reading about this point in history. Partially because I don't know a lot about this point in history, so it's really easy to just get lost in the world building of it and not nitpick for me. And yeah, it's just, it's doing it for me so far. Even though I have some questions, I'm, I'm eager to see more of what's happening. How has it been for you kind of coming back to a book that meant so much to you? It's been an experience because I've read all four of the books in this in this series and I believe that because I started with the first book right as it came out I was essentially waiting for each of these other books to come out and so it's spanned for me. It spanned all of my adolescence, essentially, because I was 12 when I started. And I think I probably finished around my freshman year of college, because that's about when Red Robed Priestess came out, which is the final book in the series. And they're all about Maeve. Jesus is a figure, but this is Maeve's story. And I think I was really nervous going back to it because I was like, oh no, it's not going to be as good as I remembered. But I was always, you know, excited to share with you in part because of the historical aspect, because even though I'm not an expert in history, this book is really well researched. There are a lot of different things that Elizabeth Cunningham probably did not know going in because a lot of this historical period is inaccessible to us because it was so long ago and because there are different translations of things. We still, we're still debating who Jesus was as a person. So it makes sense that we wouldn't know about who the Celts were who didn't have any written history. So I'm like really impressed by that. And I was surprised how much I still loved it. Yeah, I want to know you said that you had questions, and I know that this book, for me, when I was 12 at the very least, and even reading now I can see why it would still be inaccessible. Are there any inaccessible parts of this book that you feel like need clarification? Because I think that could be helpful for lots of readers. I don't know that that's necessarily how I meant it. I feel like I, I've gotten a grasp of what's going on. It's more that I'm curious as to where Maeve's story is going to go and how things are going to play out. I think my biggest question is really where the sexy part comes in or we need to really dive into how this book is branding itself and who's reviewing it and what they're saying about it because the back of the book is just the first one is Hank Radio being like this year's must-have summer reading which is always a euphemism for like a hot time and again, and again there's consent issues there but I think that it's mostly for me just curiosity I'm really digging the story and I want to see where it goes because I will say I think that the one thing 
you know, and again, 200 pages into an 800 page book, this isn't a bad thing. We're only, I think, starting to zero in on what this larger overarching plot is going to be with her as like priestess of Isis and as this kind of like magic healer and things like that. So it's more eagerness to sort of keep going and uncovering what's happening there rather than the writing being inaccessible. Okay, yeah, yeah, There's so much that she just throws at you, right? And there's mention of all of these things that, I don't know, it's kind of confusing to keep track of. <laughs> it is, it is. And there's also the aspect of the fact that you know that Maeve is now telling her story in a contemporary time. So there's also that overarching question the whole time as what the narrative structure is and if the at's ever gonna get explained because i will say for me and harmony i have already talked about this so i'm not going to dwell on it but that there's a lot of it is framed through a contemporary context and there's just some linguistic choices that for me take me out of the story a little bit but i mean it's not a bad mechanism to get your point across it just really i think emphasizes the fact that the fact that May is now telling her story from a contemporary lens is ultimately going to be important, and I want to see how we get there. I don't think this is a spoiler, really, but I think that if people are going to continue on with this series and are finding this book a little bit difficult, you should try and read this book as though this is the Bible written from the perspective of Maeve. And that's true for all of the series. This is, you should read it as a gospel. And I don't know if that helps answer your question at all. It probably doesn't. But the answer is it kind of gets answered, but nothing is ever directly answered. Oh, okay. So you just have to piece things together. Everything is like you piece bits and pieces. <laughs> kind of like a real Bible. <laughs> Fair enough, especially given the subject matter. Yeah, so there was something that you touched on that I think we'll really get into in different episodes, but I think that we can talk a little bit about in this episode, and that was the sexy times. So first of all, I don't view this book as a piece of erotica, even though, let me read the prologue for you all. It's called The Passion of Mary Magdalene, and then the prologue at the very end... So the second to last paragraph, page, I actually don't have any page numbers, but it's the second to last paragraph on the very end. Here is the story of my lost years and what I found, of our found years and what we lost. Stories unfold in time, backwards, forwards, every moment changing the meaning of all the others. This is a passion story. My passion. His. Ours. Yours. Passion breaks time open. Come, taste the mystery. So there's a lot of sex written into the text itself, right? We're talking about backwards, forwards. To me, that talks about sexual motion, the idea of taste. We talk about the idea of eating girls out. That's a big thing within this text because the vagina is kind of viewed sacredly because Maeve was raised by warrior woman in a more matriarchal-ish society. For her, it was matriarchal, but the Celts themselves weren't across the board matriarchal. There's a lot. In this prologue alone, you could think that this is going to be just erotica because sex is mentioned. And sex is a really, really big, important part of this story. But I think that's because we're this, this book is called The Passion of Mary Magdalene. And we're supposed to be understanding who the fuck Mary Magdalene is. And we learned right from the get-go, her real name is Maeve. It rhymes with wave and cave, which isn't another book. But she herself, through a lot of Christian traditions, is seen as a whore. That's her big claim to fame, is being a whore. And so this book takes that and runs with it to an incredible 
extent, but it's not necessarily all about being turned on. And I do think for the point for kink radio, the non-consensual scenes that we have seen have been non-consensual. But also, if you're reading this for a fun, pleasurable time, I can see why people with certain kinks would think that those aspects were sexy, at least some of the scenes that we have seen. And I don't feel like I'm spoiling anything too bad to tell you there there is consensual sex in the future. But yeah, this book isn't, it's not meant to just get your, your bones off. It's, it's about, it's a mystical storytelling that sex is very much weaved into, but sex is not the point. It, it's like if sex were just spirituality. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. I think that part of my point too was it's not just the kink radio stuff. The other one is like, Magdalene fans are in for more surprises than Cunningham's classy, sexy novel, right? Like, I, some of the branding about it just so far feels a little bit weird, but I'm sure it's going to change because I feel like we're where we've stopped, I feel like we're really at the point of big plot changes happening for Maeve. She's about to sort of expand out, I guess, beyond the shackles that slavery has put on her currently. So I'm really excited to see how we go from there. And I think the point you make about the the fact that she's the author is really playing into and also simultaneously subverting this idea of Mary as whore is really interesting because she does it very explicitly. It's set up on the first page as Maeve is standing there on the slave block being sold and she's talking about it and she's like I'm about to become a whore I don't even know what that word fucking means you really see she farts in a guy's face and you're like okay this is where we're at (laughs) yeah 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 you really you really just see it through a much different lens and and really subverts it And something that I think that the author does really well in this book is talk about the ways in which our cultural contexts and cultural upbringings really shape how we think about and view atrocities and terrible things happening. Because Maeve is watching a lot of the things that she has to go through and the stuff that's happening to her through horrified eyes, although she's able to find moments of joy and peace and and friendship the very least at the beginning of the book, but people who grew up in Roman society, like she makes a friend called Succula, who her cultural context is that she was saved from living on the street and therefore being a slave and a whore really isn't that bad. And she's okay with her her life, even though I think from our contemporary perspective, we're all, I think probably with Maeve more being like, what the fuck, you know? So it really explores how what you're used to and what you're what you know shapes the way you view the world and that nothing is kind of just objective good bad rules how you feel about it you know Yes and this is kind of play, it plays a little bit into my me being impressed with the historical context and that comment because it's very much well established in this book that these are different characters and part of the reason Maeve is so ashamed to be a slave is because the Celtics reject people who are enslaved. You're not forgiven for it. It's not just seen as an atrocity. It's like you are shameful because you became a slave. And even though this is slavery outright, it is hard to read this from a modern lens and not compare it to our most contextual understanding of slavery, which is American slavery. But it is it is different, right? Because this is grounded in Rome. And Rome has a bunch of really fucked up principles that they embed into their society and their citizens as well. Yeah, for sure. But it, it is true. I mean, historically, slavery slavery changed context and changed meaning after 
Britain and the United States colonized Africa, essentially, and uh, enslaved people there. This is a much more historically accurate version of what slavery would have looked like prior to that time period, which isn't to say that it's not horrendous, but you have to really ground yourself in the fact that it is a different beast and a different entity. And things like saving up enough money to free yourself are actually really common here. So I think that that comment you made about the Celts and that cultural lens specifically rings even more importantly thinking about that because it's not the idea for Maeve that she's never going to gain freedom. It's theoretically quite possible. It's the fact that the context of her life is never going to be the same because this has been done to her. Yeah. She couldn't go back anyway, though, because, you know, she fucked up the human sacrifice. It's true. She's got a lot to unpack when it comes to home in so many ways. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so you talked a little bit about liking Maeve as a character, and I was wondering what particularly struck you, especially given the time period and context that she's within. And and given to the fact that this is a this is a retelling of the Bible, essentially. Yeah, I don't know. She's just she's so funny and smart and quick on her feet. And I think that her resiliency is something to really admire too. And I really just like the fact that she grows and understands the society and the culture that she's living in, but then is also able in a lot of ways to really stay true to herself and her roots and the parts of her that feel really important and I feel like that self-preservation is just really admirable in a character and I think to me feels very feminist in a a lot of ways and yeah I don't know we just we spend a lot of time in her mind and she's very quick on her feet and thinking about things and I think that those are all of the things that I am really drawn to with her as a character I guess with the sort of caveat that I actually don't know a ton about the biblical Mary Magdalene. It's no secret that I don't know a ton about religion in general. I grew up in an atheist household. I I live in an atheist household now. I know a lot more about Jesus and some specific biblical stories that come up a lot in literature, but Mary isn't always, uh, you know, taught as part of those courses. So I'm interested to hear more about how Maeve sort of kind of meets probably plays into some of those stereotypes and what you would expect and is it other ways very very different yeah mary magdalene isn't usually talked about but in some sects of christianity she is a saint which is why my mother and my grandmother for instance are confirmed with mary magdalene as their saint but a lot of the time she's branded as a whore and there are a lot of marys in the bible and just for context maggie most of my understanding of the bible comes from this book series Just so you know, I built other understanding, but my grounding was reading this and being like, oh, okay. And then finding out and building pieces along the way. Because I know we often talk about how I somehow have an understanding of religion. It's because I read this. (laughs) This is is what shaped you. While I was reading Shadowhunters, this is what Harmony was stepping into. I know. My poor mother. She's like, I can't believe I let you read that. I mean, to be fair, when I if you read this at like 12 or 13, that's when I first picked up Game of Thrones for the first time. So after you hit that point, it's off to the races. YA doesn't really need a ton. You're, you're reading whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, okay. I want to talk about a little bit about her response to trauma, especially because we're reading this book straight after reading Girls Burn Writer, which is a much more realistic book in terms of dealing with these dark things. Whereas this book, for me, felt like 
a much needed solve because it's very whimsical in a lot of ways. You know, there's magical realism going on, but it also isn't shying away from these very dark, very real stories. And I guess I'm just, I'm fascinated by Maeve's response to trauma because I guess, spoiler alert, this is not the only dark shit she has to deal with on her journey. She's going to go through a lot of dark shit, but she still always kind of remains the same person. And there's even a quote somewhere in here, I hope I can find it, about happiness that seemed interesting to me. Because this is not, this doesn't feel like a sad book to me. Does it feel like a sad book to you? No, no. It's Maeve is a character that really takes things in stride. I guess, which sounds weird to say when we're dealing with such traumatic things. But I also think that there is definitely a psychological self-preservation mechanism there in that a lot of people don't process trauma until that trauma feels like it's kind of safely far away from them. And Maeve is still living in those conditions. So I think that there's definitely a part of it where to me it feels like there's places that she can't unpack all of this shit yet because it's it's her day to day. This is her life. And if you dwell on that shit, that's when you get hopeless. And she does a little bit at the end get hopeless. Before Joseph comes, before she meets back with Bran, which is like really right where we ended, she's in a rut and she really doesn't know how she's going to live the rest of her life, essentially being Paulina's plaything, where she's gained a little bit of agency by understanding how Paulina works and what's a threat and what isn't and understands more about the mechanics of their relationship but is still forced to service her every single day and run menial errands and do all of these weird little tasks and things like that. So I think that that's probably part of the trauma response (laughs) and sort of the lack thereof. I don't know. Sometimes I find it interesting and useful to read characters who are able to take certain things in stride because everyone does have you know, different responses to trauma. And I think it also depends on the kind of trauma too, right? I'm a woman, I've been sexually harassed. I've been in really terrible sexual situations before that felt traumatic afterwards. And for me, for whatever reason, while I processed that trauma, that was easier for me to take in stride than my experiences with gun violence, which have really fucked me up today. So I think sometimes it is kind of nice to see a different take on trauma response in a book like this than a book like Girls Burn Brighter, which takes the trauma really seriously and really deals with it in a way that I think works wonderfully for that book and will probably make a lot of people feel really seen. But there's part of me that feels a little bit more seen sometimes by Maeve in this book, just being like, shit happens and I'm dealing with it and I'll get my revenge one day. I get that. I think that's also kind of my response too, because I have been depressed before, right? But I'm not somebody who can be depressed proper, I guess. I'm just too manic for it all the time. Not manic depressed, I'm just manic all the time. I'm sorry, I'm not laughing at you, but it's kind of true. Harmony operates at a high frequency. It is true, yeah. Yeah. So I think especially being an angsty 12 and 13 year old, because this book was read during one of my most, one of the times in which I did actually consider, because I was 12 to 13 and, you know, dealing with my shit, did actually consider killing myself. It was nice to have this character who has also dealt with shit and is just like, I'm still going to be me and I'm going to be aggressively me. And that's, that's her resistance in a lot of ways, right? She isn't going to ever be less of herself. Yeah, that's her fuck you is that they can't break her. 
And I like it too because she never paints it out to be that's the way to do it, right? Or thinks of anyone lesser who does struggle with it more. This is just how she deals with it and it's working for her so she's going to keep doing it. And I feel like that's a really positive thing to read to say everyone's allowed to have their own response to this and and this is mine and this is what's working for me. Along that point, there's a quote that I want to read. It's on what page 190, chapter 24, curve. It's in the first paragraph. And Maeve is just talking about now that she's in the countryside again, her spirits are lifted, right? She was going through this really dark place, but she's in the countryside again and she can't help but feel optimistic. So the quote is, For how could I be happy when I had lost him whom my soul loved and had no idea if I would ever find him? How could I be happy when my daughter was growing up far away without me? Happiness can be heartless, can make us feel that we have broken faith with pain, with the past. Life is both merciful and merciless that way. It makes us go on. It can heal us without our consent, sometimes only to tear us apart again. Yeah, I feel like that kind of speaks to this idea of still having joy even though you're dealing with tremendous pain that is really hard right because then you're not even able to showcase all of the pain that you're feeling because this good still exists and sometimes that's just so much easier to latch on to the good but it doesn't make the pain less necessarily I also really like it as a take on the you know age-old adage time heals all wounds Because I think that there is a truth to that. And most people take comfort in that. But some people take more comfort in staying angry and feeling really hurt. And that's a safe space for them because that's what they're used to and what they know. And sometimes life will heal you without your consent and and makes you move on. And I just like that as a sense that it's okay to not want that sometimes. It's okay to want to be angry because what happened to you was an injustice. And it's okay to feel like if you start to move on from that, it's kind of happening without you wanting it to. And it's also okay to not move on from that. All of those processes are really good or can be good if they're working for you. Yeah, I just liked it. Do you have anything else you want to say about the <laughs> This book is really beautifully written. I think that's part of the reason why some of the dialogue choices occasionally, this stuff where they'll say AKA really bugs me because Elizabeth Cunningham can fucking write. That passage was beautiful. So much of this book is beautiful. And then all of a sudden it's like, what y'all? And you're like, okay. (laughs) But yeah, I think that the idea of happiness is something that Maeve really struggles with throughout this entire part. Because there's even moments where she has moments akin to happiness with Paulina that she has to measure and figure out how to deal with. And she says for a while that she can never really, she won't ever empathize with or understand Paulina. But she does come to pity her and understand more about what's happening with her. And I think that when she makes the discovery that they went through similar traumas with their father, there's part of her that does start to empathize with Paulina against her will, even as Paulina continues to do terrible, terrible things to Maeve. And so Maeve is really wrestling with the fact that really knowing somebody, it's really hard to keep all of your anger at them and towards them, because you will come to understand them if you're forced to. And I think it's sometimes really hard to stay angry at somebody who you really understand. Yeah, I think along this reading, this time around, One of the things that really struck me about this narrative is that 
if we're looking at it as a retelling of the Bible, Christianity's whole thing is forgiveness, right? That's what made Jesus such a radical was this idea that everyone is loved by God. It's not just the select few, like everyone is capable at the very least of being loved by God, which wasn't really necessarily something in the Hebrew narrative before Jesus, right? That was a vengeful God. The Jews were the chosen people. It is a lot harder to convert to Judaism than this Christianity. And Jesus is just like very, very forgiving. It does not matter if you're a prostitute or a slave. Everyone deserves God's love and you are capable of being forgiven. And Maeve herself is not Jesus. She even says somewhere in here that she wishes she had turned the other cheek, but that's not that's not who she is. But she is consistently being asked to forgive and kind of against her will because we're getting some inklings of her perhaps being a priestess for Isis, Isis choosing her, and because she is a healer and was a healer prior to coming to Rome, the gods seem to have chosen her to continue this healing. And she does kind of, begrudgingly consent to it but isn't always super okay with having consented and I think that's happening right now where we're at in the story with Paulina right she sees that this has happened she goes through a really horrendous scene with Paulina in which Paulina kind of in like an out-of-body way we're not really sure where she's at right now kind of takes up the role of her father and enacts what her father has done to her onto Maeve in a really horrendous scene. And I don't know if Maeve actually consented to that in itself, but like she has decided that she's going to feel the way she's going to feel about it is a more charitable way and that she is going to kind of forgive Paulina and she's going to go out of her way to help Paulina. And we see this sort of healing again too before when she's at the whorehouse and she meets a man who actually ends up being Paulina's sister's lover, having left his lover to die at the hands of her father. And Maeve doesn't want to help him, but then realizes that she's going to, and she ends up healing him with sex. Yeah, so I don't know. I guess when we're comparing that to Jesus, there's a sort of radical love narrative that keeps coming up and up again. And we talk a little bit too, we've also seen these inklings of this idea of the stranger. And this is somehow tied into Isis's story. Isis is helping the stranger. So Maeve has this ability now that she's not with Isus, even though she still loves him, of giving the sort of powerful love that she has for Isus to these other people. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I have enough context for the thing with a stranger to really comment on that entirely. I've seen the inklings, but I I don't I, I don't have <laughs> I don't have anything to say about it. I do think though that this whole thing with radical forgiveness is really interesting. And I think part of what makes me like Maeve's character is that she struggles up against that and she doesn't always forgive or forgiveness takes a long time. And because I mean even with all the stuff happening with Paulina right now, she's been with Paulina for years. You know, this is years and years of understanding coming to a speak grudging knowledge that maybe Paulina needs her help. I think that's something that's really progressive and interesting that this book did is that Paulina's really drunk when all of that happens, but it is strongly implied that she is in such a traumatized place that she fully dissociates and is 
not I don't want to take blame off of her because she commits a horrible horrible act to Maeve but she she really isn't all there while that's happening it's like a trauma processing response which is very real psychologically and we know a lot about today with dissociation so I was really impressed by the nuance that happened there and that Maeve picks up on that I think I wish we did get a little bit more of Maeve kind of actively processing her emotions. Sometimes it feels like terrible thing happened. We reflect on it for a second and then we push it away and then come out with a pretty okay understanding of it, which I think ties back to that fact that she's not in a place where she can even start processing her own trauma yet. But it, it does feel a little bit frustrating as a reader occasionally at this point in the book. Because I want to see more of what Maeve thinks. But she's just in survival mode. She can't do that. She's just got to get through it right now. Yeah. I don't think that's going to change that idea of really, really processing. I think the most that we've seen it is after that scene with Paulina. Maeve really questions whether or not she consented to that. Which I think is something a lot of sexual assault survivors end up questioning. Did I ask for this? In what ways did I allow this to happen? Which... I'm not shaming Maeve for thinking, but also, you know, if you didn't consent, you didn't consent. That's not on you. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's something really important, too. I mean, talking about representation and having good takes on things is the fact that Maeve has an orgasm as part of this. and And she says it's pulled from her painfully. But I think it's also really important for sexual assault survivors to know that Sometimes your body does stuff even though mentally you didn't consent to it. And that doesn't mean that you had a good time or that you consented by proxy or something like that. It's just a a response that you had to what was happening. And that's it. It doesn't mean anything more than that. And I feel like we rarely see that when sexual assault, or at least I've rarely seen that when talking about sexual assault. And I think that maybe partially because... I feel like societally, you know, in the past 14 years, we've sort of moved to the fact that there isn't really a need a lot of times to display assault on the page and you can understand what happened with with it happening off screen. And I think that's become kind of more of a preference. But I appreciated that really little detail here. You know, it just felt very well thought out. Yes, I agree. I also think in terms of the sexual assault, another... I have two points. So first, in terms of the sexual assault, I think another important thing that we got there when Maeve is unpacking it for herself is that it does bring up her trauma that occurred with her father. And when she's questioning how much she consented, she brings that back to her father. Did I consent to this? And to me, that felt very, very realistic. And it was also interesting because at the very beginning of this story, we get reference to another sexual assault that occurred when she was enslaved. And that is really brushed to the side. And she even says something like, I've experienced much worse. So for me, this is just whatever. I don't know. So I have mixed feelings on Maeve's trauma responses in terms of realism. But also, as you were talking about before, about not unpacking things, that in itself really does resonate with me. And it also is my family, I think all has ADHD in some fashion, that I don't know if they actually have ADHD or if we just can't stop. It is related to trauma. If we just can't stop and focus on things, because if we do bad things are going to come out. That is a real way that people deal with trauma and they might never unpack it in their lives. They might just keep going because when you stop and things get too real and too dark, 
especially if you've never found a safe space in which to process that, it can it can get too much. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. That's that's a really valid and useful point. And I think it's also important to know that like a lot of times survival mode means go 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 keep myself busy what's the next thing that's happening can't address that shit yet you know maybe maybe one day I think too something that's interesting you know as we've mentioned there's not a I there's talk of consensual sex happening in this book because Maeve starts sleeping with one of the guards whose name is slipping my mind right now we don't see that on the page Reginus yeah Oh, he's a slave. He's not a guard. But, like, so, like, she's having a consensual sexual relationship with him eventually. But it is also, I think, interesting and useful for the fact that Maeve doesn't think about what she is forced to do to Paulina in the same lens as when Paulina touches her, if that makes sense. Those are separated, different things. And I think it comes down to the fact that I think that when you're forced to do something, there's moments where you can still, in any place in life, there's moments where you still feel like you can have agency over how that interaction plays out. Even if you don't want to be there and don't want to be doing something, you can still drive the boat a little bit, you know, nudge the rudder one way or another. And if for her, the real violation is being stripped of all of that, which I think is made even more potent by the fact that at this point, Maeve has, again, found the places in her relationship with Paulina where she does and can exercise her own agency. And she often brushes Paulina off and she often tells Paulina what to do. And it's all in this fucked up slave situation, but she's found places that she can carve out for herself. And part of the desperation of this violation is that Paulina really strips her of a lot of that in that moment. Yes, I agree. I think that's interesting because that plays a little bit into this idea of, which I, I we're going to get into more later in later episodes, but this idea of Maeve has accepted herself as a whore now, right? And so that's why it feels different for her to pleasure Paulina versus this non-consensual thing. Do you view that as consensual now then because Maeve feels differently about it or how how do we read that because there are these really weird power dynamics at play? Yeah I think on the macro level I would really hesitate to define it as consensual because if she wasn't enslaved she, she wouldn't be there and wouldn't be doing that. But I do agree with you that there is a different context here in that Maeve has accepted that this is her job and also that she's pretty good at her job and is occasionally able to find pleasure in it, not necessarily with Paulina, but in other moments in the story. And I do think that that changes the conversation a little bit. Again, I would hesitate to call it consensual because she wouldn't be in that position if she could help it. But it's definitely different to think of it as this is my job and I have a job to do, even if I wish I could be doing my job elsewhere with somebody else. Yes, I get that. Okay, thank you. Thank you for highlighting that. Yeah, I don't know. I, it was just, it was a lot to think about and unpack and process. It really made me, the, this first part of the book really made me think about consent and what that means. Because there are so many fucked up power dynamics here that you just have to think about as a reader. And what would you do in this situation? And would you be so cool with it? And it, I, it's interesting too, because there's a callback when Maeve is first with Paulina and Paulina finally sort of utilizes her as a whore after it comes out that 
she's never been touched because her husband is uninterested in any kind of sexual relationship with her and she really can't take a lover or, or else she will most likely be executed that there's this weird interaction that they have where Maeve finishes up essentially with Paulina and then she almost jokingly puts her leg up and is like well aren't you going to reciprocate and she's semi-serious semi-joking and so there's a lot of weird shit happening there too that scene really threw me for a loop as much as it was also kind of amusing because there's just so much happening with I, there's just so much acceptance to a certain extent of like this is my lot in life and I'm gonna make the best of it at this moment while I can. Yeah, that scene was interesting to me from the sexuality standpoint, and that's what really stood out to me because and this is I think kind of historically accurate. The Romans were very liberal about sex. I don't think homosexuality was necessarily okay in their times, but it happened and people knew it happened. And that to me is always interesting to reckon with you're like okay so it's you can have homosexuality but it's not going to be accepted but everyone's also okay with it and if you're rich and powerful then it really doesn't matter and that scene was interesting to me because paulina is like oh i'm not a sappho even though she approached mave right before she even owned her and rubbed her breasts against her and was interested and wanted something from Maeve's body in a way that I would really equate to sexual attraction it felt very no homo to me like it's okay to accept a blowjob but not to give it (laughs) no I mean that's her whole thing right is it's not gay as long as Maeve is doing stuff to me and it's not the other way around then that's just me paying and utilizing a whore and they've all got mouths you know yeah but also it is kind of gay right like it is actually kind of gay. 100% it's actually kind of gay oh yeah I think so at the very least I feel like I feel like the whole thing with Paulina is she wants what she can't have to a certain extent and even now that she owns Maeve she still can't actually have Maeve for a variety of reasons that would take a whole other episode to unpack And that's what's driving her crazy. Almost even their first interaction where Maeve puts herself on Paulina's radar, like, there is sexual tension sparking off of Paulina. It's palpable. Yeah, that scene's a little hot. I'm not gonna lie. (laughs) That scene is a little hot. But that's partially because it takes place before the weird power dynamic gets set up, you know? Yeah, there's a power dynamic, but it's not scary yet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm excited to read this book further with you. Oh, I want to hear. So do you feel like some of the missing pieces are coming together? I I want some selfish harmony narcissism time. Yeah, I feel like it's starting to come together. I'm starting to see the picture. I I think I'm really just eager to see where the story goes. Like, I'm probably going to go start reading for our next episode right after this because I'm just into the book. I really want to see what's going to happen with this priestess stuff. I want to see what's going to happen with Bran, you know, especially because... We really left off with a cliffhanger to a certain extent. Bran is trying to get Maeve to kill him for kind of unknown reasons. <laughs> and he can't leave. He's it, it would be dishonorable. Somebody has to protect the Grove. So he is free only because he is at the Grove. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, to keep going. And I, I do feel like some of the, some of the muddledness is starting to kind of come together. Yeah, I'm excited too, because I forgot so much. I also her time with Paulina is the most boring part of this book. <laughs> and I forgot about how long it lasts. 
Yeah, yeah. And they even did a multi-year time skip, too. You essentially get taken through a couple of days to see what it's like, and then they time skip to this new and more exciting part, because life as a slave isn't interesting. Because you have no, no rights, and therefore no agency. Okay, well, then I guess that's all, folks. What are we reading? Oh, I am reading Four Winds by Krista Hanna. What are you reading? I am still reading the du- A Duke, A Lady, and a Baby by Vanessa Riley. And I'm still reading The Year of the Witches by Alexis Henderson. And I'm still, like, kind of reading the Tending the Frigid Flame, you know, on and off. Yeah, in this book, this giant, giant book. This giant, giant book. What's our homework for this week? I guess my homework is going to be to try to be more forgiving because... As I try and figure out my philosophy towards how the country should be run and what's fucked up about this country, it becomes more and more apparent to me that the foundation of a more equitable society is a society that allows for restitution and allows for forgiveness and for people to like reckon with things and then to be able to move on with their lives if they so choose and to not continually punish them forever. And I think that's really difficult right now when we have such incredible polarization and when a significant part of the country full on believes that, I mean, there probably is a secret sex cult to a certain extent, but like full on believes that people are eating babies and shit. And therefore that somehow relates to all Jews being bad and having caused wildfires and things like that. But I think in order to be a more equitable person, I have to start practicing forgiveness in terms of learning how to deal with these people. And that doesn't mean that I can't still fight for justice. But also I think like I'm studying to be a librarian. So that's something I'm thinking a lot right now is like, how do I reach people who are just so, so wrong? And in a lot of cases, choosing to just be wrong because they're not, they're too lazy to think critically, right? But like, that's going to be my job is to try and figure out how to encourage people to think critically and to like still give them the best service possible and still help them find the things that they need. So that's going to be my big thing, is trying to work on figuring out how to have boundaries, but also still be being forgiving to people, because I think that will best help me serve them. And I think that being helpful and kind does have an impact, right? And it does showcase to the world that, hey, forgiveness is possible, and you can move on, and it, it can be okay. And you can change as a person, because I think that's a big thing, right? I... I'm constantly thinking about all of the microaggressions I've ever done and feeling guilty, but it's okay for me to have to learn and to become a better person. And that's a good mentality, I think, for society as a whole to have. Harmony is going to a field that's much, much more similar to mine now. Yeah, these are questions and things that I feel like I've been wrestling with for a long time, too, is I don't have control over who comes into my museum. And it's my job to teach them and to reach them. And to, uh, there's no space for anger in that interaction, even if I think that they believe something really horrific, right? And if I get angry, I'm actively not doing my job because my job is to teach. And when you do that job, that's how you can start to nudge people away from that. 
but it's a really difficult balancing act. People will say really heinous stuff to you and you gotta like keep your cool and figure out how to deal with it even while you're screaming inside. It's a feat working with the public and not just because there's like Karens in the world, it's because you've gotta serve everyone, you know? My homework for the week is not related to the book at all. My homework for the week is related to current events. We have seen a slew of mass shootings over the past couple of weeks. As you all know, gun violence has really shaped my life and I spend a lot of my free time being an activist, specifically helping other white people who have experienced gun violence in a context like I have understand that you can't just campaign for things that you know, affect mass shootings or stuff like that when that's 1% of gun violence. And specifically, I've been spending a lot of time this past week and will continue to spend a lot of time bringing Asian American hate crimes into the fold because something really awful that I think is happening around these conversations is that a lot of white people are trying to bring Atlanta and what happened there into the conversation of mass shootings, which completely erases the fact that it was a very targeted hate crime even though that's not how the police and a lot of media outlets are framing it and making sure that I'm really centering Asian Americans uh, over the next couple of weeks in that activist work that I do because frankly before this a lot of my work is or or was more focused on black Americans and brown Hispanic Americans who suffer at much higher rates of gun violence than white Americans do. So I really want to refocus on that. And just so you all know, of course, this is really on Harmony and I's radar and we're actually in the process of planning an episode about it with some own voices guests. So Please don't think that just because we haven't sort of pivoted right now to talk about this stuff means that it's not on our radar. We've been posting stories with resources and ways that you can help and get educated on our Instagram and on our Facebook. So check all of those out and we'll be coming to you soon with a lot more substantial information from people who know a lot more about it than Harmony and I do. So stay tuned for that and we'll keep you all updated on when you can expect that episode. Yes, most certainly. Just just keep updated. We, we probably will like boot something from our schedule for a week so that we can have that we're just you know usually we're allowed to be a little bit more speedy because Maggie and I are like fuck it we're just gonna do it ourselves but when it comes to Asian Americans there are so many things to do with race that we were like we should probably really get somebody else who is smarter on here to help us talk about it because it's not black and white which is a bad pun so that's that's why we're we're not pivoting as fast as we have kind of in the past, I guess, when terrible and big things are happening. But we're still doing what we what we usually do with vetted resources and things like that. So so check all of that out and keep an ear out for what we're up to and when we're coming at you with that special episode. Yeah. Alrighty. So the next the next place that we're reading up to is page four eighteen, chapter fifty-nine. The name of the chapter is Help. Fabulous. We will talk to you all next week. Bye! Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club and clicking read along 
you can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at Rebel Girls Book Club at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.